All right, well, good evening, everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 36? Genesis 36. Now, Genesis 36 is devoted to the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in the land of Edom, which was to the southeast of the Dead Sea. Uh, the genealogy really represents the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Esau back in chapter 25, verse 23, where he told Esau, or told his mother actually, that Esau would be the leader of an entire nation. Well, we're seeing God fulfill that tonight, and uh, I will tell you this is riveting reading, so uh, let's just jump in, all right? Verse 1, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabajoth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimeth bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore uh, Jeush, Jaalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau, who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his, his daughters, and all his, uh, the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, when we compare the story of Esau's life with Jacob, especially uh, in light of the promise God gave to Jacob, that even though he was the younger twin, now Esau and Jacob, of course, were twins, but Esau was born first and then Jacob, and usually the older is to be blessed above the younger in God's economy, but that wasn't the case with these two. God said that Jacob, the younger, would rule over his brother and be blessed over his brother Esau. Well, you take that promise and you compare it to the two men's lives and how each of their lives progressed as they got older, it does appear as though God didn't keep his word to Jacob. What am I saying? Well, those who have studied these genealogies have determined that Esau was married at least 40 years before Jacob, which means he was having grandsons while Jacob was still having sons. For many years while Jacob was living as a servant to his uncle Laban, Esau was becoming the leader of a nation with his own army, amassing more and more wealth and power. Now eventually Jacob did begin to prosper as we've already seen in our study. But by the time Esau and Jacob are finally reunited, after 20 years, Jacob is still basically a Bedouin farmer and rancher. Whereas Esau is uh, producing generations of tribal chieftains, kings, and was consolidating his hold on the area of Edom, growing wealthier and wealthier through the commerce that passed through his kingdom. I'm wondering, what would Jacob have been thinking while this was going on? Think of the years that he was a shepherd in his uncle Laban's house. He says it was rough work out of his own mouth. I mean, it was a 24-7 kind of a job. I mean, he was outside in the elements, the rain, the cold, morning, evenings, throughout the night, and so on. All of this, and he's not even prospering for the first 14 years. He's working for his uncle Laban's wealth. 
No doubt he's getting word from somebody about Esau, how Esau is, is building a kingdom, how Esau has become a very wealthy and powerful king over a nation that bears his name. I'm wondering what Jacob was thinking. Was he angry with the Lord that God wasn't fulfilling the promise that he had made to him? I mean, I wonder if Jacob asked himself, you know, why is God treating me this way? He promised me I was going to be, he was going to bless my life over my unbelieving brother. Why hasn't he kept his word? Ever feel that way? We'll get back to that in a moment. But Jacob, for many years, seemed like he was just stuck in neutral. Blessings? No, he was working hard to bless others. But somebody has said that God is never in a hurry when it comes to the work he wants to accomplish in his children's lives. And the greater the work, the longer the preparation. During all the years that Jacob spent serving his uncle Laban, and then the 10 to 15 years after that, especially when he lost his beloved mother's nurse, Deborah. She was like family. And then later on, he lost his beloved wife, Rachel, and then his father, Isaac. I mean, through all those years, it seems to some that God had maybe abandoned Jacob. That's not true. God had not abandoned Jacob. In fact, God was at hard at work in Jacob's life. He was building Jacob's character. He was growing him out of Jacob into Israel. Guys, the greatest work God is up to in our lives isn't the work he wants to do through us. For God, that's nothing. The greatest work is always the work he wants to accomplish in us. Character building is always the longest and most time-consuming work that God undertakes in our life because that's always the most important work. It's easy for God to use a donkey to speak through. It's easy for God to use anyone to do some work through. But the work of building character into a person when God first has to tear down the junk before he can build up something of value inside that person, well, that is God's greatest work. That's a construction project, Paul said, that the Lord began in our lives the day we accepted Christ and will continue until we see him face to face and we are made like him. But look, again, what we are for him is so much more important to God than what we do for him. And often we lose sight of this, especially when... Time is dragging on, months and years maybe, and we are struggling, going through difficult times. We see unbelievers around us being blessed. We ask ourselves, you know, why are they being blessed? While I, as a child of God, am always going through difficulties and struggles, and why isn't God blessing my life like he's blessing theirs? Now, guys, that is the very issue that the psalmist wrestled with. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, because this is important. This is something that God's people wrestle with from time to time. And certainly the psalmist wrestled with this in Psalm 73. Let's just read the first few verses and hear what the psalmist was going through. He said, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there is no pangs in their death, they die in peace, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish for. They scold and speak wickedly concerning oppression. 
They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. They're boastful, proud, arrogant. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't know what I'm doing. He doesn't care. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue. Um, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? And let's be honest, I think every one of us at different times in our Christian lives have kind of felt like this, feeling sorry for ourselves, right? Looking around and why am I always struggling? I'm a child of God. Look at the wicked. They're always being blessed. They got plenty of things, material things. They, they're at peace. They, they have good lives. They die in peace. You know, their children are being blessed. Everything they do is blessed. They have all they could ever want for. Here, I'm a child of God. I'm always struggling. I'm always going through difficult circumstances. The psalmist said, you know, when I thought about this, I almost lost my faith. I almost slipped. Until what? I went into the house of the Lord. Then I understood what their end was going to be. Very important, guys, that we always see this life in the light of eternity. Because when we don't, well, we begin to lose perspective. The thing we have to realize, the thing that we need to remember about Esau and all unbelievers that have earthly wealth and blessings is that their blessings are limited to the earth. And someday, if they do not repent, their blessings will be replaced with an eternity of sorrow. The Bible says weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That's their end. The psalmist remembered that. That, you know what? They might be being blessed for a little while on this earth. But I'm being prepared for eternity, the psalmist said. God is working in my life that I could have the most glorious eternity possible. And that means going through struggles, like Jacob did, and other patriarchs and people of the Old Testament and New Testament. God's people have always struggled. This is God's way of building into us his character. It keeps us close to him, on our knees, and so on. But for the unbeliever, guys, this is as good as it's ever going to get. For the child of God, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. For us who believe in Jesus, just the opposite is true with regard to the unbeliever. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to how Paul phrased it. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 8. He said, We, as the children of God, are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Verse 16, That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. 
but the things we cannot see will last forever. So we need to get our eyes off of the earthly struggles and get our eyes onto the glory that's waiting for us after we have suffered and struggled and we are matured and we are grown into more and more into Jesus' image. That's what God's doing. He's shaping and molding our lives that we might receive the greatest reward and blessings in heaven. But guys, remaining, excuse me, maintaining a proper perspective in life, listen, is the difference between depression and joy and between defeat and victory. I just challenge you this week to read the book of Ecclesiastes again because the whole book of Ecclesiastes, whether you know it or not, is a book about perspective. Over and over, Solomon talks about how everything is emptiness and vanity and it wastes away everything what? Under the sun, right? And all through the book, he keeps using that phrase. I tried to find happiness through pleasure. That was a waste. It's all van vanity and emptiness. Uh, I tried to find fulfillment by building great things. That too was emptiness and grasping after the wind. Everything he concludes is emptiness and vanity where? Under the sun, from an earthly perspective. But then all of a sudden, things shift in the book. All of a sudden, Solomon starts looking at life through a heavenly perspective. In fact, he says in chapter 3 that God has put eternity in our hearts. And the idea is that, look, only we who have been created in God's image have the capacity to defer happiness from this life as we serve God with all of its struggles and trials. But we keep our eyes on the eternal. Only we have the ability to do that because we were made in God's image and have received Christ as our Lord and Savior. The difference is like looking at the city of Chicago from a garden apartment and then the penthouse of a high rise. From a garden apartment, you just see street level, you know. Your view is limited, all right? Your perspective is hindered. But when you go up into the penthouse, you have a grand view of the entire city. And that's why we must always keep our perspective from heaven onto this life. As Paul said, that when Christ saved us, he took us and he seated us where? In heavenly places. Because he wants that to be our vantage point. He wants that to be our perspective on life. That we don't look at life from ground level. You know, at the struggles and just wanting to survive and, you know, that kind of thing. We have been made not to survive. We have been made to thrive in the Holy Spirit and to do the work God's called us to do. And I'll tell you what, you keep your eyes on this life, everything under the sun, you're going to be defeated. You're going to be depressed. You keep your eyes focused on this life from heaven's vantage point. You'll have joy. You'll have victory because you realize this life is just a necessary time that leads to eternity. Guys, Esau may have prospered in the things of earth, but he did not prosper in the things of God. And he will regret his disdain of spiritual things. And that's what he did. He disdained spiritual things. He could care less about his birthright. He sold it for a, for a bowl of pottage, of, of lentil soup. That's how much he cared about spiritual things. The birthright meant that if the father died of the family, who was the spiritual head, the firstborn would, would take the role of spiritual leader of the family. He still didn't care about spiritual things. He lived his life for this world. He was a man of the world and lived his life for the world. And he will regret his disdain of spiritual things for all eternity. In fact, his life is not lifted up in Scripture as something to be emulated or celebrated, but something to be castigated, a warning to the rest of us not to walk in his footsteps. Turn to Hebrews 12. 
Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 12, starting in verse 14, as he's admonishing us to live with eternity in our hearts. Live for the Lord now. He said, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What was he seeking diligently with tears? Repentance? Of course not. If he had been seeking repentance diligently, of course God would have granted it. God would have, anybody who comes to the Lord and says, God, I've lived a carnal, selfish, worldly life, and I want to change. I want to receive Christ. I repent of all of this. Well, certainly God opens his arms to anybody who does that. No, Esau didn't want the birthright. He didn't want to be a spiritual man. But he wanted the blessings that came with being a spiritual person. Just like a lot of people. They don't really want to live for God. But they sure want to die and go to heaven, don't they? That's something that you can't, you know, that, that won't be. So Esau was a profane person. He was not a believer. And so we see in Genesis 36, the genealogy of Esau. Impressive from an earthly point of view, but tragic from a heavenly one. Now, guys, verses 15 through 43 talk about the chieftains and the kings that descended from Esau. And guess what? I'm not going to even begin to try to pronounce these names. You can mispronounce them as well as I can. The chapter concludes by saying in verse 43, These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Now, a footnote before I move on. The Edomites became the perennial enemies of the children of Israel, fighting against them every chance they got. They were pagan to the core and became so involved in the occult and in demon worship that God eventually ordered the prophet Obadiah. You can read Obadiah's book. God eventually ordered the prophet Obadiah to pronounce their destruction. Their capital city was Petra, which is in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, the Old Testament was called Basra. Basra. When the Antichrist rises to power, there's going to be three areas that will not come under his rule. Ammon, Moab, and then Edom. All three of these areas are found in modern-day Jordan. And in fact, we read in the book of Revelation that when the Antichrist starts to persecute and kill the Jewish people, especially right there in Jerusalem and around there in Israel, uh, but when the Antichrist starts to persecute and kill the Jewish people during the tribulation period, many of the Jews living in and around Jerusalem at that time will flee to Petra, where they will take refuge and where God will protect them during the last half of the, th of the tribulation period. So that's just a quick little sketch of chapter 36. You can uh, get into all those names on your own and enjoy yourself. And, and honestly, I'm sure there are some real treasures that got us stuck there and some of these names and give you some insight. I'll let you dig that out on your own. We're going to move on to chapter 37. Now, guys, chapter 37 begins the final section of the book of Genesis, and it deals with the story of Joseph. So important is Joseph to the narrative that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, devotes one quarter 
of the entire book, 13 chapters to his life. Joseph shines in the pages of Genesis as one of two major characters in the scriptures of which no evil is spoken of them. Of course, I'm excluding the Lord Jesus Christ, but the other one would be Daniel. Now, that doesn't mean that Joseph and Daniel were sinless, but simply that the Holy Spirit chose not to record any of their faults and failings. In Joseph's case, the Holy Spirit doesn't ascribe any evil or wrongdoing to him because the Holy Spirit is holding up Joseph as a type of Christ. In fact, Arthur W. Pink, in his commentary on Genesis, lists 101 ways that Joseph is a type of Christ. For example, Joseph was loved by his father, verse 3. He rebuked the sin of his brothers, verse 2. He was hated by his brothers and sold into the hands of his enemies, verses 4 and then 26 through 28. He was punished unjustly, chapter 39 tells us. He was exalted and became the savior of the world, for all the world had to come to him for bread, chapter 41, verse 57. And he received the Gentile bride during his rejection by his brethren, chapter 41, verse 45 tells us. That's just a few of the ways Joseph was a type of Christ. We'll list some more as we go through this. The major difference, of course, is that Joseph was only reported to be dead, whereas Jesus Christ actually did die on the cross of Calvary because that was the, and rose again the third day because that was the only way we could be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and only the shedding of the innocent, the blood of the innocent, could atone for the guilty. Jesus Christ was the sinless Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So verse 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And so in contrast to Esau, who built an earthly kingdom, Jacob, like his father and grandfather before him, remained a pilgrim and a sojourner in the land of promise. Verse 2, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, in other words, his father's concubines, really. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, Joseph, as we've already seen, was the first son born to Rachel. Rachel died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Bilhah, at one time, was Rachel's maidservant. And Zilpah was Leah's maidservant. They both became concubines of Jacob. Bilhah bore him two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And Zilpah also bore Jacob two sons, Gad and Asher. Now, these four sons of these two concubines no doubt grew up with a lot of resentment because they felt and were no doubt, no doubt treated as second-class sons. Jacob made that very clear when he was going to see Esau the next day, and he arranges his family according to his least favorite to his most favorite, starting with the concubines and their sons. So these guys knew where they stood with, jo with Jacob, all right? And no doubt they grew up with a lot of resentment in their hearts toward him and the other children of Jacob, especially as we're going to see Joseph. When it says that Joseph brought a bad report of these four half-brothers to his father, um, some read that and think that Joseph was nothing but a narc. Okay? You know, daddy's little favorite, tattletale, and you know, ratting out his brothers, his older brothers. But I think that Jacob purposely had Joseph work with these half-brothers, no doubt, yes, to assist them in the responsibilities of the family ranch, 
and farm. That was important. And no doubt Jacob did assign Joseph to them to assist them in their responsibilities. But I think he also assigned Joseph to these guys because he wanted Joseph to keep an eye on them. Jacob was no fool. He knew his sons, all right, as any father really knows his kids. And Jacob knew his sons. He knew that these four sons um, were not the best sons of character. I guess it takes one to know one. Uh, Jacob wasn't that great either. I mean, he's grown a lot, but uh, in his early days, he was quite a scoundrel, as we have seen. Anyways, he knows these guys. He knows that uh, they really can't be trusted, and he wants Joseph to kind of keep an eye on them. Uh, I don't think Joseph was being a tattletale, quote-unquote. He was actually in harmony with his father and always did what pleased him, even as Jesus did when he said, I always do those things that please my father. Again, Joseph being a type of Christ. The fact that Jacob did favor Joseph over his other sons <laughs> didn't really help to promote family unity. All right, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, there are many who read this and they consider Jacob's favoritism of Joseph as carnal and wrong. But notice what the Holy Spirit calls Jacob in verse 3. Israel. Israel. Indicating that he was not being carnal here. Whenever the Holy Spirit calls Jacob Israel, it signifies he is in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and obeying what the Spirit wants. So here, by the Holy Spirit calling him Israel, we know he's not being carnal, but was in tune with the Holy Spirit by favoring Joseph and giving him a tunic of many colors, the uh, famous uh, Technicolor dream coat. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> many scholars believe that the correct translation is not a tunic of many colors, but really a long sleeve robe. In fact, it could have been a long sleeve one-piece robe as he is a type of Christ. This would have been the kind of robe, guys, a foreman or a boss would wear on the job. Uh, This was not the outfit of a working man, okay? This indicated that Jacob had elevated Joseph. You can imagine this. Jacob had elevated Joseph to a place of authority over his other brethren. And he gave him this long sleeve robe as a special garment that indicated he was in charge. He was the boss. He was the foreman uh, on the job uh, over his older brothers. That must have made them, talking about promoting family unity, I'm sure that didn't help at all, all right? Or in other words, as Jacob made Joseph in authority, put him in authority over his brothers, guess what? He was preeminent over his brethren, just as Jesus was preeminent over his older brothers, the priests and prophets that came before him throughout the whole Old Testament period. He was greater. Also, this uh, expensive robe, I believe, was basically the same kind of robe that Jesus wore. And uh, we know that the one Jesus wore was an expensive robe, the only expensive piece of clothing he owned. And we learn later that it was uh, woven from one piece without seam, so much so that when the soldiers were dividing up his garments, instead of dividing this tunic or this robe into pieces to split among the soldiers, because it was so valuable, they decided to cast lots for it. 
so that it wouldn't be cut in pieces. That's how valuable it was. Now, the fact that Jacob, or in other words Israel, had placed Joseph in charge over his brother seems to have been prophetic, uh, a prophetic move on Jacob's part. We read in verse 5, Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please, hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? They rightly understood what the dream meant. Should you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. If Joseph the teenager had any faults, it would have been, he was a little too naive when it came to thinking his older brothers would be happy uh, about this dream. I don't know where he was, what he was thinking, youthful indiscretion. I mean, here God gives him a dream where it's obvious the implication is or the, or the uh, interpretation is that, you know, one day his brothers would bow down. To, he would be an authority over them. They would bow down to him. Now, he thinks this is a great thing and goes with his big brothers and says, hey, big brothers, I had a dream. And this is an ad, and he says, isn't that great? No. I, I don't know what he was thinking, but they said in verse 8, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. If you listen closely to Joseph's brothers, you're sure to hear the nation of Israel saying of Jesus, we will not have this man rule over us. John 19, verse 15. Verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. It's interesting that with the second dream, Jacob interprets it for us, basically telling us that Jacob's entire house, the whole house of Israel, would someday bow down to Joseph. Well, this would happen at the end of the book of Genesis, short-term partial fulfillment. At the end of the book of Genesis, after Joseph is elevated to prime minister of Egypt, basically the savior of the world, in a sense, because he was given, uh, he was allowed to interpret some dreams Pharaoh had about a famine that was coming. Pharaoh didn't know that was what the dreams meant, but Joseph interpreted these dreams for Pharaoh and said that you're know, going to have seven plentiful years followed by seven very lean years of famine. And after he explained the meaning of the dreams to Pharaoh, he then gives Pharaoh some advice about what to do. He says, look, this is what I recommend. During the seven years of plenty, you should build storehouses, massive storehouses all over Egypt and put the excess grain in these storehouses, storing it up for the seven years of famine. This way, your kingdom will be spared. Pharaoh was so taken with Joseph's ability to interpret dreams and give great uh, guidance with what to do with this, these two dreams that he elevated him to a place of prime minister, basically making him the savior of the world. And eventually towards the end of the book of Genesis, where the famine now is reached into Canaan, where Jacob and his, bro uh, and his sons are, they hear there was grain down in Egypt. 
Jacob sends his sons, sons down to Egypt to get grain, and you know the story. We'll study it in detail in the weeks to come. But uh, eventually Joseph was made known to his brothers. After he was made known to them, of course, they did bow down to honor him. And uh, he invited them and their father to come back to Egypt where he would uh, take care of them, where they could live in the land of Goshen and so on. But um, the fact that Joseph is a type of Christ, listen, we know that someday when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when he's revealed to the whole house of Israel as the Savior of the world, at that time the Jewish people will bow down and worship him. But this imagery that likens the nation of Israel to the sun, moon, and stars shows up again in Revelation 12. Why don't you turn there? Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. John is seeing these visions unfold before him. He said, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and, the se and seven diadems or crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third, a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. And of course the woman is Israel. And how that at one point God brought forth the Savior uh, through Israel. Of course the devil tried to kill the child through Herod the Great who had the, uh, the male children two years old and under in Bethlehem. He slaughtered them trying to kill God's Christ, his anointed one that had come to save the world. And um, eventually, of course, Jesus was caught back up into heaven after his resurrection. He ascended back to the Father, but he is coming again. But before he comes, the second time, uh, the Antichrist is going to unleash a wave of persecution against the Jewish people primarily, and many of them will run down to the rock city of Petra, as we've already mentioned, where they will take refuge, and God has prepared a place for them there where they'll spend the next three and a half years until Jesus does return. So the imagery of Israel being likened to the sun, moon, and stars. Oh, one more thing. Notice that after Jacob interprets, uh, Jacob interprets Joseph's second dream, notice what it says in verse 11. And his brothers, what? Envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Guys, this also points to the way Jesus' brethren acted toward him and why they wanted to kill him. You remember when they brought him to Pilate for him to be crucified. In Matthew 27, verses 17 and 18, uh, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. The Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over to Pilate for him to be crucified out of envy. Well, back to Genesis 37, verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, What? Here I am. In other words, Father, I'm reporting for duty. Whatever you want me to do, that I will do. Joseph, like Jesus, lived to do his father's will. Verse 14, 
Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers, and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron. That's where they were living, Hebron. And he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? Now, he wasn't really wandering. He was looking. He was seeking his brothers. The man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are, where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So here we have Joseph, listen, the good shepherd in a family of evil shepherds, all right, seeking his brothers, and he finds them. But listen, even though he was sent by the Father, he was not received by his brothers. Even as it is said of Jesus in John 1, verse 11, he came to his own, to the family of Israel, but they did not receive him. Here's something interesting. Hebron, which is where Jacob and the family was living, was about 20 miles south of what became the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't there yet. Probably was the city of Jebus, maybe not even at this time, but eventually the Jebusites took control of the area. Their capital city was Jebus, and uh, later David conquered the city and renamed it Jerusalem. But Hebron was about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was about 30 miles south of Shechem. So Joseph's brothers were 50 miles from home, leading the sheep and uh, having them uh, graze. It's about a five-day journey, 50 miles from home. I think author Warren Worsby brings up a couple of important questions about this section in the story. He says, and I quote, First, why were Jacob's sons pasturing their flocks 50 miles from home when there were surely good grassland available closer to Hebron? Possible answer? They didn't want anyone from the family spying on them. Second question, why did they return to the dangerous area near Shechem when Jacob's family had such a bad reputation among the citizens there? Well, Shechem was the very place we read about in chapter 34 where Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped. And Simeon and Levi were so furious they slaughtered all the men of the city of Shechem. Of course, that made them an abomination in the eyes of those that lived in the area. And of course, Jacob and his family had to get out of town because, you know, and God protected them, but there was, would have been a, a bounty on their heads. So the question is, what is Jacob's sons doing back in Shechem tending the flocks? Worsby says that, here's a suggested answer. He said the brothers were involved with the people of the land in ways they didn't want Jacob to know about. So, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Jacob's sons were not men of honor and character. And so they obviously gravitated towards people that were not men of honor and character as well. And it could be, and I think Worsby's onto something. I think it could be very possible that after they had left the area, uh, they had still built some relationships while they were there. And some of the people they had built relationships with, maybe that, those relationships still went on. And so they went back up there and were involved maybe in some things that were not right. Things they wanted to keep from their father. I don't know. Verse 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, that's the sons of Jacob saw Joseph coming afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, 
Let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Joseph's brothers knew it was him coming, even from a long ways away. Why? How? Because he was wearing his special robe. And guys, the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns at his second coming, the Jews are going to see him coming from a long ways away. He's going to come through the clouds, right? And not only the Jews, but every eye will see him at that point. And it says of the Jewish people, they will mourn because they realized at that point that they killed their own Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, whom they will recognize, listen, because of the robe of righteousness he's going to be wearing. Well, verse 21, but Reuben heard it, heard this plan, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben, who was not exactly a paragon of virtue, I mean, we learn earlier that he slept with his own father's concubine. But here he shows some character in appealing to his brothers not to kill Joseph with their bare hands, but instead to throw him into a pit. Listen, we don't want to defile ourselves with his blood, okay? Uh, we don't want to get our hands up bloody. So why don't you do this? Why don't you just throw him in that cistern over there? Big, you know, hole in the ground. Throw him in there and just let him die of exposure and hunger and thirst, okay? But this way we won't get our hands bloodied and be guilty of directly causing his death. Now, of course, we learn at the end of the verse there that Reuben, it was his plan to go back then later on after his brothers had all gone to pull Joseph out of the pit and return him back to his father Jacob. That was what Reuben was planning. It didn't actually work out that way as we're going to see. But some see in this reference to the pit, they see a reference actually to the tomb of Jesus uh, where he was placed before he came forth alive uh, after his resurrection. But verse 23, So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And I'm sure that must have given them a great deal of pleasure to strip him of this special robe that his father had given to him and then to throw him into this cistern. At one point, Jesus had his tunic or his robe torn from him by those that wanted to kill him, just as Joseph did here. Verse 24, Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. The empty pit is really a picture again of the tomb in which Jesus would be buried, a tomb that was empty. Nobody had ever been buried there before. We read about that in Luke 23:53. But um, years later, in Genesis 42, the brothers are still feeling very guilty about what they did to Joseph. And they're talking amongst themselves because of what they did. Bad things are coming upon them now. Listen to how they describe the events of that day. They're still feeling guilty and they said, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So while Joseph was in that pit, he was crying, he was pleading with them not to leave him there, but to take him out of that, deliver him out of that, that grave, that it would have been his tomb, right? To basically deliver him out of this, this tomb. He pleaded with them. 
He was uh, weeping and, and, and so on. And guys, this reminds us of the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Something the writer of the Hebrews tells us went on in that garden that the gospel writers don't tell us. Turn to Hebrews 5. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews, he's giving us insights into the prayer of Jesus in the garden to his Father that we don't get from the Gospels. He said in Hebrews 5, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, I think we've talked about this verse earlier in our study in Genesis. But let me just say this. Jesus in the garden was praying to his father. And he was weeping, sobbing with vehement cries and tears to him, listen, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. What is the writer saying to us here? Is he saying that Jesus was pleading with the father not to send him to the cross? Well, that can't be because it says he was heard, implying the Father answered his prayer. And we know that's not true because Jesus said uh, during his earthly ministry, he said, what should I pray to escape the cross? For this reason, I've come into the world. So no, he was not praying to his Father that he would escape the cross. What he was praying for, what the Father heard and granted, was that the Father would not leave his soul in Hades. After he died, of course, Psalm 16 talks about this. How that Jesus Christ his body didn't see corruption because God did not leave his soul in Hades uh, nor his body in the grave, but resurrected him. And that's what Jesus Christ... If, you know, here we see the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. We're so focused on his deity that sometimes we lose sight of his humanity. And here, as a man, he is weeping and crying with all his heart, Father, I'm going to the cross. This is your will. I, receive, I accept it gladly. But Father, I beg you, please don't leave me in the grave. Don't leave me in that pit. But take me out. Resurrect me. Which is exactly what the Father did. So again, Joseph becomes a type of Christ. Now, <laughs> verse 25, after his brothers threw him in this pit, while he was screaming and crying and pleading with them for his life, they sat down to eat a meal. Wow. I mean, Wow. The callousness of these men is breathtaking, okay? It just goes to show, though, that if you let bitterness and hatred enter and control your heart, listen to me, you can justify and do almost anything without guilt and shame. Guys, this also applies when a person has convinced themselves into thinking that killing another human being is justified for the sake of accomplishing some greater good, like the Nazis, who killed Jews during the Second World War. Sociologists, psychologists who interviewed Nazis after the war, of course, they were convinced before they interviewed these men what they would find. Uh, heartless monsters. Because uh, only a heartless monster could do the things that these men did to the Jewish, Jewish people. And uh, gassing them, throwing them into ovens, and so on. To their amazement, what they found when they interviewed these men was that they, were, for the most part, were decent people in every other way. They were good fathers, uh, good husbands, good neighbors. People spoke well of them. 
And they came to realize that they had so brainwashed themselves into thinking by killing the Jews, they were serving a higher purpose. You know, get rid of the Jews, make the human race stronger, the Aryan race and so on. We're doing a greater good for humanity that justifies us killing the Jews. When you are able to convince yourself that you are doing something atrocious for a greater good, you can sleep at night. You shut off your conscience, no longer sounds the alarm, and you can do it without guilt and shame. Of course, you've been following the news lately, right? About how undercover things have shown that uh, different uh, leaders in Planned Parenthood who were secretly videotaped many times over lunch, and they were uh, asked if a, a woman who has her fetus aborted, if she wants to donate the baby's parts to medical research or whatever, uh, I, I guess that's allowed. You can't sell it, but I guess if you want, you can uh, allow the baby to be given over to research facilities and so on. But that's not what was happening here. Uh, these leaders were heard, uh, seen talking. Again, over lunch, eating salad, drinking glasses of wine. Are you kidding me? They were uh, videotaped uh, talking about price for these fetal cadavers, various prices for intact organs and so on. One doctor said, this is, this, this just, it's just the bottom line, I forgot what phrase she used, but every part of a child has different, brings a different price, and so it's just a line-item thing. And of course, even people that are pro-abortion were horrified uh, about those revelations, that Planned Parenthood was involved in the trafficking in aborted baby parts. Of course, those that are involved in this kind of thing have no guilt or remorse because they believe they're serving the greater good. That by protecting a woman's reproductive rights, we are serving the greater good. And if we can make a little money off the fetal cadavers, hey, what harm is that? So justifying it. This is the world we're living in. And guys, when the Antichrist finally makes his appearance and begins to slaughter Christians and monotheists, not just Christians, all monotheists, and why I believe the Antichrist, and I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but I do believe that the same lie that Satan fed the human race in the Garden of Eden, Eve, you won't surely die if you disobey God, you'll become like God, all right? There's no ultimate death, reincarnation. You just keep getting recycled until you ascend to Godhood. And the, and, and the way to Godhood is through the tree of knowledge, through enlightenment. That lie, which was planted in the human race in its embryonic state in the Garden of Eden, has had 6,000 years to grow and mature and has become an evil tree that has covered the world and filled it with evil fruit. And I believe there are many lies that have come into the world. But that one lie that Satan used to deceive the human race in the beginning is going to be the same lie he's going to deceive the human race in the end. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, chapter 25, and then in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, he talks about the lie and connects it to the Antichrist coming. Not a lie, the lie, a very specific lie that I believe was the same lie planted in the Garden of Eden, that you can become God. We're all one, you know. God consciousness fills everything. We're all really God. We don't know it. We have to be enlightened to that. And those in the New Age, and they don't call themselves the New Age movement anymore because that's gotten too negative. They've redefined themselves and call themselves now the new spirituality. The new spirituality. But it's the same old lie. 
In fact, those like Barbara Marks Hubbard and those who are gurus and leaders in the whole movement, they are telling us that the planet Earth is an organism. And people on the planet Earth are cells in the organism. And just like you have cancer cells in the human body that have to be destroyed, removed, if the body's going to be healthy, any person who refuses to acknowledge that they are God, they are selfish, they are hindering the global consciousness from coming together, and being God, therefore they have to be eliminated. But that's okay, we're doing them a favor. Because they'll just be reincarnated again, come back more enlightened next time, get with the program, we're doing them a favor. Killing people to serve the greater good without guilt or remorse. It's coming. It's coming. These guys were priceless. I just They were just incredible. Uh, they didn't want to dirty their own hands with Jesus' blood. And so they threw him in a pit, sat down and had a meal. Kind of reminds us of the leaders in Jesus' day who didn't want to defile themselves with Jesus' blood. Defile, that way they wouldn't be able to observe the Passover meal. So they handed him over to Pilate to, for Pilate to do their dirty work. And while Jesus was hanging on that cross, the Passover meal, um, well, it had been eaten the night before, but while Jesus hung on that cross, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and um, just amazing how they, you know, ate their meal so callously after they had killed the Son of God. Well, verse 25, And they sat down to eat a meal, and they lifted up, they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, Now Reuben seems to have gone by this time. He's not there. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. You see the hand of God in this whole thing? Where did God want Joseph to be? In Egypt. Ishmaelite traders were made up of the descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah. In Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2, we read about that. Also, uh, the Midianites were residents of Arabah, uh, with whom the Ishmaelites had intermarried. So they were all kind of in the same family now. And um, Joseph, just like Jesus, was sold for silver. Joseph for 20 pieces and Jesus for 30. You say, well... If Joseph is a type of Christ, why wasn't he sold for 30 pieces of silver, silver also? Because Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. He's preeminent in all things. As we're going to see, a few pieces of silver, these men split between them for selling Joseph into slavery, couldn't begin to compensate for the guilt they would suffer for the next 20 years. Verse 29, Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So again, apparently Reuben wasn't there when Judah talked his brothers into selling Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. I'm not even sure at this point he knows what really did happen. They may be keeping it from him as, him as well. But Reuben's statement, The lad is no more, and, where, and I, where shall I go, probably means that as the oldest in the family, he knew his father Jacob was going to hold 
him responsible for Joseph's death, even though Joseph had not died. We know that. But Jacob didn't know that when he was revealed to him. And so Reuben is basically saying, Dad's going to hold me accountable. I mean, how can I go home now is the idea behind what he said. So the brothers devised a plan to deceive their father. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped, his, dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? What a bunch of rats. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Do you see the irony here? Many years earlier, Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, by killing a kid of the goats. Of course, he used the skin of the goat, the hair, um, to put on his hands and arms and on his neck to deceive his father into thinking he was Esau, to steal Esau's blessing, of course. We, we have studied that. But uh, just as he deceived his own father through uh, killing a kid of the goats, now his sons deceive him in the very same way. Guys, this is a classic example of the law of reciprocity in operations. Simply put, what you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. Well, finally, verse 35 and 6, And all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he, Jacob, refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Now we're going to pick the story up in chapter 39, uh, next week, though, chapter 38 is kind of a parenthesis uh, where we learn something that Judah did that was pretty outrageous. And, uh, you know, one thing about the scriptures, God never paints his people in unrealistic ways where we come away thinking they were super saints. He always paints them worse than all. And he does that, no doubt, in part to tell each one of us that he doesn't save perfect people. He saves sinners by grace. And if God could save Jacob and Judah and Simeon and Levi and this bunch of scoundrels, if God could save them, there's hope for all of us, right? So just let that ring in your ears the next time Satan tries to condemn you because you have failed and haven't measured up to some level of perfection that he's got you thinking you need to attain to. Not that we revel in our imperfections or in our failings. But we know this forgiveness. And God's grace covers us, saved us, and will see us all the way home. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for, Lord, this study that your spirit uh, has led us through. We thank you, Lord, and get, for giving us fresh insights. As we read this story now, Lord, from this point on, help us to see how Joseph becomes a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We can learn a lot from Joseph's life. And Lord, give us grace to apply the lessons into our lives, that we can be more like Jesus as well. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.